Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt Garasimovich, PhD student in Russian Lit. This week, really getting into my Constantine Levin era as I finally <laughs> plant my raised beds. Finally. <laughs> Based on the photos you sent me, they're very nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if Tolstoy entirely intended lawn maintenance as his main thing of, of the farming thing, but we yeah. can't say it's not because he didn't cover it as far as I know. Right. But I do think if Tolstoy had the weekend that I had trying to maintain my lawn, he would have completely rewritten the Levin portion. Did not enjoy. (laughs) (laughs) Chapter 30 of Anna Karenina. Why the HOA's rules are bullshit (laughs) and clearly not applicable to the actual reality of how you do lawn maintenance day to day, week to week in this specific area of, uh, you know, on the... Yes, Napoliana. If he was alive today, I do think he would be kind of just a redditor that complains about HOAs. Sure. He, he he wouldn't have been a writer, I don't think, though. Let's give the man due respect. Sure. He would be attending HOA meetings and like physically running a campaign of like borderline terrorism against them. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> well, um, I'm Cameron Lalana, and a fun little thing, fun little fact about my week is that I work both on the, the television side of the news station and the, the internet side of the news station, and it's uh, Easter weekend and Easter week, so everyone's taking the week off, so I volunteered to do some extra help. And uh, as I let Matt know a couple days ago, I did some math, and I am currently in the middle of an 11-day work week. So today is day six of my 11-day work week, so we're, we're chugging through. I think it's bold of you to come out here when people advocate now for a four-day work week. You say no. Sure. 11. <laughs> I'm I'm literally posting articles like getting getting articles online about the 11 the 4-day work week in the middle of my 11-day work week. So, <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> it's it feels like I'm looking through zoo glass at the other side, putting my hand up against it, <laughs> slowly dragging it down longingly. <laughs> well, if you get news, you can't get away from Cameron. That's what he's saying. Sure. <laughs> And before we jump into the show, we just wanted to extend a quick thank you to our newest patron, Christina. Thanks, Christina. All right, on with the show. This is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week, we are going through uh, book four, part one of War and Peace. I know we were going to do parts one and two, but hey, we decided no, just part one. We're going to focus in. There's so much to talk about in part one. So much. One of the legitimately most difficult to read scenes in this entire book yes happens in part one and i want to set on that for a while because hey you think modern literature can portray horrifying moments of emotional destruction Uh, you haven't read the execution scene yet no it's fine Well, we're going to find out if it's fine, but uh, after investing all this time in reading War and Peace, if indeed you're following along with us, you probably want to make sure you're getting the most out of your reading. That's why you need to head on over to patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. That's where we post a reading guide for each episode that includes a quick commentary on major quotes and themes. Plus, once a month during this series, we're hosting a Patreon-only reading group to discuss everything we didn't get to discuss on the show. Yeah, and I think we've only got one more of those reading groups left. So by the time you're hearing this, you better get on into our Discord and get that information. Uh, get on our Patreon. Hey, why not? It's pretty fun. But if you're not interested in Patreon, but you still want to help the show out, you can leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. 
And before I get into the reading today, Matt, I would normally ask you, what are you drinking today? However, it is 9 a.m. on Monday morning. Yes, sir. And um, we don't want to, uh, uh, um, what's the word, uh, put out to our employers that we have deep problems. So we're not actually drinking anything. Spoiler warning. Not well. Speak for yourself. This episode, oh. our first sponsor, maybe ever here, brought to you by water. Yes, it's good. <laughs> it falls from the sky and you should probably be drinking more of it. <laughs> right. Yeah. We're being sponsored by water and coffee this fine 9 a.m. for me, yep. uh, 11 a.m. for you. Yep. Yep. Well, I'm an academic, so time isn't real. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have to be turns out sober to write news because it turns out when you're being looked over by by senior news people uh and anchors who are going on air to write down what you say they they do care about the form function and fact correctness of what you've given them so yeah that one's a tough one to swing wouldn't it be more fun though (laughs) it's like it's like a little in game where how much can you get in that's not true before they notice right right well um so let's talk about book four the final book part one the final book except for kind of the two epilogues <laughs> except for two epilogues <laughs> which is a conceit that truly only Tolstoy could believe that he is worthy of you know i'm gonna come clean right now i'm actually not entirely convinced that i finished the second epilogue when i read this <laughs> the first time for class because sure. i got through epilogue one and i was like awesome and then i saw epilogue two and i said no thank you <laughs> <laughs> you gotta be kidding me <laughs> No, that's that's the correct response. If it is anyone but Tolstoy, I would call and and this is still borderline. Writing two epilogues is folly and of the greatest degree. Yes, but I mean, great, but kind of respect it. Sure. Yeah. It, well, it's the kind of respect you know. You know how like the line between uh, a bravery and stupidity is success. Mm-hmm. Um, that's also how I feel about this. It is the line between great writing that's allowed to be a little masturbatory so to speak uh and the line between writing that's god awful is truly only (laughs) how the novel itself comes off the thinnest of lines Mm -hmm. exactly one that i would i would not want to tread so anyway so what's going on right now you might recall last time we we mostly went over the battle of borodino which is you know turning point the french still obviously capture moscow at the end of the day but if you were to believe tolstoy it is the moment that the fortunes change, not because of the will of the commanders, but because of just the will of history itself, or rather the will of the many millions of people involved, which create history. What's happening during Borodina? Well, as you might imagine, the nobility deeply involved in the war effort by hosting more soirees out in Vorodesh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Anna Pavlovna is doing what she is doing best, and she's hosting another soiree, notably all of our favorite characters are there, with the exception of Helena, who is taken ill at this point and is being treated by an Italian doctor. Who the book doesn't say this, but it seems to heavily imply a sexy Italian doctor. I mean, <laughs> I mean, what are you gonna do? <laughs> the the much of the much of the conversation this soirée is she's being treated by that doctor. <laughs> oh, 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 um, Petersburg. The, this Petersburg. Uh, uh, I don't want to call them rabble. They're the nobility, but they're kind of rabble. They, they, with the letter of Kutuzov being distributed by the Battle of Borodina, kind of misrepresenting exactly what's happening there. Everyone is coming to the conclusion that, oh, we're winning, right? So that does partially inform uh, the, 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 the celebration of having, although they'll learn only a day later, that, uh, that they've abandoned Moscow, which you might imagine 
if you learn later on that you imagine you've abandoned your capital, maybe the war's not going as well as you thought. And I should note at this point, very much in one sentence, as, as Tolstoy's wants to do in regards to death, we learn on the side that the sexy Italian doctor did not in fact work uh, and mm. Helena dies, which yeah. is... <laughs> Gets an off-screen death. I think we need the off-screen death counter. Uh, frankly, even a lot of the on-screen deaths are off-screen deaths. Yeah, nobody dies well in this book. You know, like in <laughs> Anna Karenina, you get these really extended death scenes. Right. Here, like one sentence. You have to reread it because you're like, wait, did they did they die? Is this a metaphor? No. Did he really no? kill off like kind of a main character? Just like that? <laughs> yeah, he did. Right. So, well, and while we're staying in Voronezh, Nikolai is there and he's he's been dispatched there to find supplies and he gets invited to a ball because obviously... When you're finding supplies for the military during a war effort in which the war is going extremely badly, uh, I mean, you got to go to a ball. What else what more important thing could there be to do? And um, the countryside has gotten more exciting as nobility has come here because they're fleeing the war. And he spends this evening at the ball hanging out with relatives of, uh, you know, Princess Maria, who are basically determined to get him married to Maria after speaking to him. And so they, they start a whole process, which will lead to... Maria meeting up with Nicola again, and her aunt will will basically be like, "All right, we gotta we gotta fix him up with with Maria," which leads to a, another you know a plot line calling to the future of Maria coming to Voronezh um, because her relatives are trying to bring him there to to match make with Nikolai. When they meet again in Voronezh after several days, they feel this change coming over them. They feel intimidated. They don't know what to do. This is the first time I've read a scene of like attraction in a book, which wasn't two 14-year-olds being like, I want to marry that person forever. Instead, <laughs> two adults being like, I don't know how to deal with my feelings. What is this? I mean, this deep attraction, but also I can't put it to name. Not that that's everyone's relationship to attraction, but it does feel like my own experience. And so it is weird that that is... Falling in love with doing this podcast sure exactly that has, that has been my experience when i come to this podcast feeling that fear of oh i don't <laughs> i feel fear almost fear that i'm not good enough <laughs> to do this podcast so they, they see each other a few other times throughout this process even seeing each other in, in, in church um then i would say tolstoy implies that they're deeply in love but i won't say that because he doesn't imply that he says it many many times in this process <laughs> Uh, which ends in Maria going back to Yaroslavl uh, because she's heard that her brother is there and, and Nikolai returned to his regiment to bring them supplies. I assume they must desperately need because they are currently, I must once again emphasize, losing a war. <laughs> um, so out in Yaroslavl, or nearby at least, Sonia's in a pretty difficult place because, uh, you know, she's been in love with Nikolai since... Again, her cousin, since they were children, and the Countess has been treating her terribly since they've realized their dire financial straits and have put all their hope on Nikolai marrying Rich. Initially, she intended to kind of drag it out, but after uh, an encounter with, as a reminder, Andre is one of the wounded people who uh, accompanies the Rostovs out of Moscow. After seeing a, a sort of tender... Uh, encounter between Natasha and Andre, she decides, all right, uh, you know, I, maybe it's time to let go. Because she, she remembers years ago telling Natasha when they were playing a childhood game that, oh, yeah, of course, Andre will love you forever, or something to that effect, that he'll come back for you. And in a sort of vision, uh, uh, not exactly, in a Ouija board like game for the kids, 
which at the time, as she remembers, and as is noted earlier in the book, when it happens, is totally an invention on her part. She sees nothing. It's just just a childhood game, but it's something she invents to make Natasha feel better. But in its own way, it's kind of come true. And uh, she decides that, well, we don't actually get privy to her thoughts, but she ends up writing that letter to basically release Nikolai and tell him to marry Maria. While all this is happening, we join our boy Pierre for, frankly, one of the hardest parts of this book to read for me. He is confined to a shed along with other prisoners. As a reminder, again, he was arrested for assaulting a French soldier last time who was attempting to assault or like was beating an Armenian woman, if I recall correctly. Something He's doing something violent to an Armenian woman. He, Pierre intervenes and is arrested and is subject to interrogations. Uh, and through this process, eventually they're like, all right, well, time to shoot him. And uh, they're taken out to be shot in a pretty extended scene uh, in which because of the trial the in, in, in Pierre's ability to speak French and his his ability to connect with the French soldiers because of his frankly because of his, his ability to speak French, um, he creates a connection with them, which has them uh, spare him, not telling him they're sparing him, but rather simply not including him in the men being shot when they bring them out. And and holy shit, this is a tough scene to read. It is. <laughs> yeah, it is brutal. I mean, we're not we're just like taking people out to get shot. It is an extended scene of the emotional reactions of the French as they are shooting these young men, these young men uh, who and dealing with their inability to realize that they are about to die the way they die, the way they slump down the post after they've been shot. And the next man is brought up, not believing again, that he's about to die, even though he's watched so many other people slump down that post. And even at the very end, in some of the, one of the worst parts of this book, Pierre realizing that not all of them are actually dead as they are being buried. I, I will talk more about it later, but it's a it's a tough part of the book. That's there. There's moments when Tolstoy gets unexpectedly. I, I mean, this is this was a feature of life. This was as he reiterates over and over again. Maybe the fact that this classic literature sometimes creates a barrier between us and then of being like, oh, that was back then, but realizing that the war was incredibly brutal, very violent, and Tolstoy reminds you of it. I actually think it's even more relevant nowadays because the real horror i think is that the war is not just confined to the separate sort of sphere of war which as tolstoy says if everybody kind of was able to right like see what was happening there would not be there would not be the same kind of wars that you know are going on but so when you have the overlap between the war and the civilian sphere it creates uh situations where something like this which is pretty terrible can arise but especially with how war is fought nowadays a lot of it is fought right like in cities and where like civilians are um mm. which is the horrifying part of it it's easier to sort of compartmentalize it when you say okay well it's a military fighting a military eh, it's mm. just war it's just big boy games uh which is kind of how a lot of the military scenes are presented in the book but like you said the most horrifying aspect of this is right the complete collapse of war into peace and military into civilian which i think like you said it's kind of e even more pressing today probably than it was at this time yeah absolutely so pierre is let out he spends the night goes goes back to his shed and as it is said in the book his basically his belief in god and universe and humanity itself has been destroyed by this done 
absolutely gone. Which I mean, I mean, fair. If you're a to- if you just go watch, uh, you know, eight or nine people get shot and then one of them buried alive, at least one. Fair enough. That's a, that's a fair point for for spiritual crisis. I can't begrudge you that one. And uh, but as he spends more time among these prisoners, he finds a sort of comfort, not in anything higher or bigger or big concepts, but he finds comfort in basically the simple straightforwardness of some of the people. There's there's one member, uh, Platon uh, Karatayev, who is he's not the smartest guy. He, he doesn't really know what's going on. He's just kind of sitting there, just trying to make it by, singing songs to entertain himself. Frankly, doesn't even really know what songs he's singing. They're just comforting and old to him. Um, as it said, it's a, it's a manifestation of an activity unknown to him, every action of his. But he does it, and he and it's very simple, and it's attractive in its simplicity that it's not overthought. He's just trying to make it by, which is where we'll leave Pierre for now. Uh, up, uh, let's return to, to Maria, who, as a reminder, was traveling to Yaroslavl, or slightly outside of it, in order to find her brother. And she finds him with uh, the, the Rostovs, naturally. Nikolai, at this point, has spent uh, some, some amount of time with the Rostovs. In fact, a great deal of it, now that they're no longer on the road with Natasha, having many quiet moments. He's gone through a sort of spiritual journey of his own, which, in short has prepared him for death. I think on some level, although it's not really said that he knows he's dying, everyone around him knows he's dying. And he seems to, he's not, he's not fighting against this dying of the light. He is simply accepting and kind of walking into it. Um, and, and it said at some point that if he had been screaming in agony, it would have been more comforting to her than if this, the mere acceptance that he has when she, when Maria finds him. And uh, at this point, Maria and Natasha, who is a reminder, the first time they met during their, uh, Natasha and Andres. I hesitate to call it a courtship because she was 16 and he is 30, but that is technically what happened there. So during that courtship, they did not get along. But finally now, in the moment of Andres' death, they find a comfort in each other and a strength in the other and, and a respect for the other's personhood, which they maintain onward, at least through this point, um, as they sit with Andre as... He passes and has many thoughts on on love and life. And he has a death scene, which is more concentrated than a lot of death scenes, but it's still kind of off off screen in the sense that it leads up to his death. And then immediately in the middle of the paragraph, the characters begin reacting to his death, (laughs) which has happened between sentences. (laughs) And, uh, you know, as, as this time, they have come to accept it in, a way, in the same way that Andre has. And so they die after he dies, as it's noted, not because of, of grief, but rather because of the, quote, simple and solemn mystery of death that had been accomplished in their presence. And that's where we end part one of book four, which is, if you were reading along with this, you'll note very short, however, uh, a jam-packed part. So jam-packed. no shortage of things to talk about. None at all. We have too much to talk about too much to talk about uh, is there anywhere you want to start uh yeah i think that uh this was a an interesting one as we started to get into a little bit on war and peace mm-hmm. and you know <laughs> as we started getting as we began to get into war and peace we began to get into war and peace uh, around a thousand pages into this book <laughs> no i don't mean the title i mean the <laughs> war and peace no, yeah. aspects individually right but yeah. i will say as far as War and Peace goes, it's also interesting. <laughs> um, there's a lot going on with Pierre in this. Mm. 
And as you were kind of talking about this, I was trying to work this out in my head, but so there's a scene where Pierre is talking to and looking at a French soldier and there's this line that Tolstoy notes basically about how just them looking at each other establishes human relations between the two of them on a level that's different than right war relations. Right. And so, of course, this is Tolstoy's general commentary on right war dehumanizing people and you know how if we can kind of reestablish these human connections we might be able to not have war however also kind of an an interesting thing as you were saying like the fact that he speaks french is one of the main things that prevents him from being executed and from you know like being lumped in with just the the cattle of the everyday people Mm. which are essentially how they're treated in this and so it kind of brings up like an interesting point on education, I feel like, hmm. uh, on Tolstoy Tulst- being <laughs> pro-education, dare I say even pro-study abroad here, uh, <laughs> in the sense that, right, what separates Pierre is that he's kind of, you know, quote-unquote cultured here, right? He, uh, he kind of understands where, I don't know, not where the French are coming from, but I guess in a lot of ways he shares more with the French than he does <laughs> his own people. Right. Uh, which is kind of interesting. Um, so I don't know. I don't have fully worked out a lot on that. I just thought it was kind of interesting. Uh, I think it's interesting how you could construe it to be in-, in advocating, you know, part of the book for educating people. Right. Like, not only is there a sort of inherent knowledge that people have that, you know, Tolstoy points to here, which is positive, but there's also, you know, an element of learned knowledge that is, you know, can be beneficial to pre- preventing war. <laughs> if you will. Right. Yeah, I think to your point, Tolstoy is not trying to say, or at least it wasn't conscious that the fact that they both speak French is like what kind of what saves Pierre, although it, sure. it re- kind of is. It kind of is, isn't it? Um, if I can if I can quote real quick. When they are, when, when Pierre's in the court, the, the, the court martial, Devote, or Devote, uh, Devote looked up and gazed intently at him. For some seconds, they looked at one another, and that look saved Pierre. Apart from conditions of war and law that took established human relations between the two men, at the moment, they realized an immense number of things had passed between their minds and realized they were both children of humanity and were brothers. And at first glance, when DeVoe had had only raised his head from the papers where human affairs and lives were indicated by numbers, Pierre was merely a circumstance, and DeVoe could have shot him without burdening his conscience with an evil deed. But now he saw in him a human being. He reflected for a moment. So, I mean, what I think what Tosa is getting at is, like, breaking of our normal programming to carry on our duties or jobs of, okay, well... I got to shoot this many, this many Russians today, uh, or this many, you know, whoever we captured in this capital today. And and it's that moment of human connection of Pierre, because Pierre has an outburst and kind of goes off at him. But again, to what we've been talking about, the only reason that it means anything is because Pierre is able to communicate with him in his own language. Sure. Um, sure. So I, I, it's an intentional thing, but, you know, like a, a, an understanding of nobility in a certain way of of uh it's it's not quite the same as you know if you've read the book everyone had to read in high school uh all quiet on the western front where you know two soldiers realize oh we're basically the same because they're in the same circumstances not quite that everyone is in the same circumstances but in this case they're simply children of humanity which is only brought about by recognizing what is familiar in in the the french man in in you know this unknown distant quote-unquote 
right foreigner also another dunk on the social sciences <laughs> elaborate just the the fact that um kind of right these papers that he focuses on that essentially try to quantify people that that is what is determining whether people are literally put to death or not and so this sort of one moment a split second of humanity that they share between them is what saves them and or what saves pierre rather i guess the french guy is it's fine for now um, <laughs> but yeah i think that that's something that is shared nowadays in sort of a lot of academic disciplines or just general discourse in the sense that you know, it's kind of easier to do bad things if you can kind of quantify it if you can kind of sure uh, you know, it's like a justification for doing things that isn't really a real justification, and yet we all have some sort of implicit agreement that, well, if you can stick numbers on it, then, well, I guess you can do that. It's not that bad. The numbers support it. Surely it can't be that bad. Oh, we're just, <laughs> right. just putting all these people to death, but that's what the papers say. And obviously it's not that simple, uh, but, you know, it's a kind of a, you know, damning conclusion for a society like ours that mm -hmm. is based on, you know, numbers quantification like these are like core pillars of what uh at least today especially we believe to be you know our sort of source of truth right and so it's a very small part of the passage but i do think it is kind of a you know we talk about how Tolstoy's is annoying because he just talks about uh you know all this stuff at the beginning of each part of the book but here's like a clear example of how he kind of applies it to the situation right yeah no and that's a good point because uh not to get uh, blatantly political here for a moment, but uh, we got him. When I was in early college, okay. <laughs> I, you know, I did a lot of work around, around the, the prison system in the U.S. And I remember talking to someone once and explaining that, like, you know, if you aren't aware, the pre the U.S. prison system has over two million people in it, and they like immediately, well, like, did the math on like, well, if you do the number of prisoners to the number of overall Americans, that's actually not that high. And I was like, I don't know how to convey to you that 2 million people in prison is not a normal number. Right. I like, it is a normal number, maybe in China. And the thing about China is that they have a literally a billion fucking people in there. So if you actually do it by ratio of person to prisoner, that's actually at a, still at a normal level. Uh, you know, as long as we accept these numbers were given. And even if these numbers were way higher, they'd have to be way, way higher in order to match the U.S. prison rate. And e e right. So they like these numbers are still a conversation or to your point about how numbers and quantification can be used as a justification. The idea that two million people is not that much overall can be done in just a quick, you know, back of napkin math as justification for maintaining certain systems. So numbers are bad you've heard it here first get rid of them seven eight nine and you should not trust them <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I do want to come back to this in a little bit more talk about the execution scene but i also wanted to talk about what i kind of saw as one of the theses for this particular section okay and i'm gonna read a, a, i would say a quick quote but it won't be quick uh which is that tolstoy is essentially trying to lay out here that it, it, again, this idea of history being made not by certain particular men ordering it to happen such, but rather by the individual will as each people of each person. But I think here he actually he has an interesting variant on it, which is he puts forth 
The tales and depictions of that time, meaning the war, without exception speak only of the self-sacrifice, patriotic devotion, despair, grief, and the heroism of the Russians. But it was not really so. It appears so to us because we see only the general historic interest of that time and do not see all the personal human interests that people had. Yet in reality, those personal interests of the moment so much transcend the general interest that they always prevent the public interest from being felt or even noticed. Most of the people at the time paid no attention to the general progress of events, but were guided only by their private interests, and they were the very people whose activities at that period were most useful. Basically, and I think this is something, again, talking about how Tolstoy writing War and Peace is not just of this time period, but is something that is beyond it, maybe even dare I say, somewhat, you know, eternal, is that when you look back at any period of history, uh, you know, we could we could specifically want to place this in modern politics, looking back on, you know, the Russian memory of World War II specifically, or I should say like the whole Soviet memory of World War II, not just, you know, ethnic Russians, but anyone in the Soviet Union, of which there were many, as well as the other, you know, Slavic countries um, and non-Slavic countries surrounding them. And looking back and seeing a great, historic principle to fight for, but not seeing the great mass of individuals, which is, I think, why we enjoyed Vasily Grossman so much, who inherently rejects the the historic uh, rule, but rather embraces the individual uh, in the story. But Dolst, again, is as, as a setting up this whole section of those people, of Pierre, of the individual who were shot and killed, of the people in Voronezh partying, um, it's there is no historical principle that governs any particular time he puts forth, and in our own time we understand that. Today we look forward and we say, "What are we doing?" This is everything's haphazard, but it's always been haphazard. Everyone always pursuing their own interests. People might look back at old times and old events and say that back then they put their whole effort into doing this thing. They misunderstand history in that sense. I mean, as a as a to bring in the American context again. And this is where the prime, the, the most of my education is, uh, you know, the Vietnam War, if you look back on it, the fact that draft dodgers were such a major element is something that still today is taught. However, you might not know that the number of draft dodgers in the Vietnam War is basically the same as World War II. It's not that, like, the numbers are not that far apart. And it actually, I think, favors World War II, if I remember correctly. So uh, the fact the fact of World War II in the American context, the the historical interest, the idea of it, overshadows the reality of it, which is the same number of people dodged that war as did the Vietnam War, a much more unpopular war. And I say that to mean the the idea of the historical era in any particular circumstance can so overshadow the actual reality that um, Tolstoy doesn't use these words, but we've been propagandized about our view of history of by the simple nature of, well, that was a historic time, so people must have risen historically to it. And Tolstoy says, no. People are always just going to be people, <laughs> for better or for worse. Yeah, I think it does actually kind of diverge with Grossman a little bit, and mm-hmm. with socialist realism on the whole. And right. while it does take a similar approach, I think that the key distinction is that for socialist realism, and you might be wondering, well, why does this matter? <laughs> I'll wrap. I'll wrap it around at the end, don't worry. Uh, I almost never do. Um, (laughs) it's that the here Tolstoy is saying that the like you were saying right the general interests are 
nobody nobody cares about them. No one's thinking about them. People are only doing what's best for them. And then when we look back kind of in retrospect, we kind of cobble them together and see what we think might be the general interest. And that's what's kind of created it. It's our historic reality that we create. Of course, it's not reality, but it's what we create. Well, for Grossman, I think what he's saying in, in Stalingrad is that the individual interests align with the general interest. And so it's easy to get swept up into that general interest. And we read that now as propaganda because we uh, hate the idea that anything could be different than how we live. Uh, and so <laughs> we must inherently view that uh, that different, that other as propaganda when eh, maybe it is. Parts of it, certainly. Other parts of it, maybe not. It is definitely different than Tolstoy. And actually, in a lot of ways, what Tolstoy is saying here, I think is more similar actually to like our situation like in the west currently um or in the west historically even um whereas grossman strikes us as right like just foreign actually in a lot of ways um i, I don't know this is just my perception that a lot of americans would <laughs> identify with any sort of like collective or a right general group per se maybe vaguely but not like really um only ones in which they already sort of align generally, broadly, with their individual interests, right? So it's different. It's interesting. Um, if you haven't listened to our Stalingrad series, honestly, you should. Some people say the Tolstoy of the 20th century. I've, I've heard that. <laughs> I, I heard that a lot in that series, actually. I don't I know who said it, but mm -hmm. um, maybe I guess you have to listen to that series to find out who said it. Everyone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not to give too much away, but yeah, so this is, I mean, I know we kind of clown on Tolstoy for like making the same point over and over again, but this is really even among, I, I think to say on, on the whole, Tolstoy does make interesting variations each, each time he makes the same argument. But for me, this is one of the most interesting variations on the basic argument and not just like the idea of like, okay, history is created by the masses, not by individuals. Sure. All right. That makes sense to me, but really like, no, but we, we not just, but we, we propagandize not because of a central agency or any particular power, but just an assumption on our part is this was a great monumentous time. Sure. We must have had great monumentous people. Sure. No, they were just they were just people. Same same old, same old, having their parties, dying on the battlefield, being shot in a ditch. Well, I do think though that this is extremely relevant to the time in which Tolstoy is writing, which is kind of like right, it's kind of the beginning of nationalism. I mean right been going on for a little while but we're really starting to like conceptualize and create theories of it and mm. so you are getting to a point where people are deliberately misremembering pasts right to create mm. um you know a national identity and this is not i'm not the first person to say this there's whole right books and articles on how we create basically our national myths based on things that didn't really happen the way that we remember them. Um, <laughs> so I think Tolstoy is kind of like poking around that idea a little bit as well and mm. uh, saying that <laughs> we kind of assume, like you said, that something greater was happening. Um, and I think that most of the time it's unconscious, but I think that there are instances where you could have a deliberate mismembering. Mis <laughs> mismembering. <laughs> you could have a deliberate misremembering, for instance. Um, right. I think that... It's it's safe to say in pretty much every country's history books you could find something like that. Sure, yeah. And again, getting to how relevant this is today, I mean, looking back about 
talking about Stalingrad, like, for example, the misremembering of Stalingrad, not misremembering it. It's not like a wrong remembrance, but it is a remembrance directed towards mythologizing and deifying sure. rather than sure. context setting, I guess. So, sure. yeah. Um, so let's talk about, uh, in particular, and move on to... I could talk about I could talk about Zizek. <laughs> Zizek, let's 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 bring in Zizek. Why? I want to hear this. Not. Okay, so <laughs> I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to be making of Karatayev. I'm pretty sure he's supposed to be a positive figure, uh, based on this sort of like <laughs> I don't know, almost like peasant understanding of of the world. But sure. I'm not entirely sure I'm going to agree with that. I don't know if I'm, you know, like I said, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be reading here, so I'm not sure if I'm mm-hmm. reading it against the grain or if maybe this is the reading that Tolstoy is offering. I would say that Tolstoy is often attributed the idea of wisdom. Mm. People say, you know, oh, we say it like, oh, it's very Tolstoyan or, you know, people kind of extrapolate from Tolstoy and try to make generalizations. And now that sounds... Like, I'm kind of just making stuff up because we talk about how, right, Tolstoy's generalizations can be applied. But I just want to focus on that for a second because I don't think it's right in a lot of ways. I don't, I'm not sure, even though I do see a lot of relevance between certain situations, I don't think what Tolstoy is writing is 100% right, like general. It's not intended to be general and just plopped onto like every sort of situation. And so, this passage with Karatayev, the narrator is talking about Proverbs. And he says, The Proverbs that were prevalent in his speech were, for the most part, not the coarse, indecent saws common among soldiers, but those folk sayings that, taken out of context, seem to have so little meaning, yet, when aptly applied, acquire the significance of profound wisdom. He would often say the exact opposite of what he had said on a previous occasion, yet both would seem right. And now I'm not convinced that this is a positive sort of thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I linked a, a video from Zizek talking on wisdom in our Patreon mm. notes, and I can I can pass the link along for the show notes. That way, camera doesn't have to go digging into the depths of uh, Zizek YouTube for this. <laughs> Although it is really enjoyable, I know for him. And never, that. never is is a boring moment there. Never is a boring moment. So Zizek's problem with wisdom, I think, is that it essentially doesn't really say anything. Doesn't say anything specific. And that the opposite of wisdom can also be true. And so what do I mean by wisdom? Like any sort of kind of um, proverb or saying. A lot of times when we talk about wisdom, it comes from right the idea of like the Christian tradition. But we don't even need to go there for this point to be made. Uh, you could say something like variety is the spice of life. And that could be true. But maybe you could have somebody say, well, um, no, variety is not the spice of life. The spice of life is doing the exact same thing every day. And maybe that convinces you. Maybe that seems to be true. And maybe you could also say, um, well, you know, the spice of life is doing the, uh, the exact same thing every day, except for once a week where you do something different. Maybe that's the same thing as variety is the spice of life. I don't know. What I'm getting at is that none of these sayings really mean anything. Um, they can be true in just random instances. Um, the opposite of this kind of proverb or this idea of wisdom, right? Uh, it can be kind of permutated into like you know different variations on it and so that's why for Karatayev when he can say the opposite of what he had said before on a previous occasion yeah both of them can be right well wait then we're not really you're not really getting at anything and so I think that to take from Tolstoy 
this idea of wisdom i'm not sure it really i'm not really <laughs> sure it kind of holds up um but i do think in in a lot of ways kind of if you'll follow me here for a second that is Tolstoy's sure. wisdom because a lot of what he's saying is right like we should not try to generalize we should try to dig into the specifics into the individual into the deepest possible level that uh we can find and that to me is not really quite the same thing as right a generalization and so it is interesting because Tolstoy is often you know associated with his desire to understand the peasants and i think that there's some sort of realization here right that like not everything that they're going to give you is going to be good even if mm. <laughs> he for the most <laughs> part kind of idealizes his peasants right the wisdom that comes from this sort of proverbs maybe not good but what we're kind of looking at is right this desire to get to that sort of individual level of understanding which also kind of takes us back to pierre and the execution mm. scene uh, a little bit and which right this individual understanding is sort of what can save lives is what is positive so yeah there's a lot of thoughts here there's a yeah. lot to say in wisdom i think that is interesting especially in towards the end towards because i did want to come back to the pierre execution scene for a moment because it is so interesting to me again we talked before about how it's it, it's kind of funny how tolstoy approaches so many philosophies and ideas and concepts that later become so large and yet never really gives full voice to them. He just kind of talks about them, perhaps, uh, you know, giving voice to the fact that these are not really novel, super interesting ideas. No, no there are interesting. I should, I should take that back. But no, they're not novel ideas, but rather ideas that anyone could have had at any point in history. It's just recently we have, we have these these um, reference points to attribute them to. And when Pierre is is standing before DeVoe, before the commissioner, understanding whether or not he's going to die, he feels, you know, what... Who, he was wondering, like, who is executing me? Who, who is giving the order for me to be killed? It's not Tavo, really, because he's, he is literally giving the order, but he is just, as we said before, looking at numbers and uh, responding accordingly. And so he asks, who really is killing him? Because who is giving them these numbers? Who is producing them? Who even knows they're for? Who is, uh, who is executing him, killing him, depriving, depriving him of life? Him, Pierre, with all his memories, aspirations, hopes, and thoughts. Who is doing this? And Pierre felt that it was no one so he feels that it's not an individual person doing this but a system of circumstances killing him uh, you know a, a system of, of of depriving him of life and uh, annihilating everything around him of not specific of i'm not i'm not going to extract too much your point about general wisdom but like to the extent that generalizations can harm here you have a, a point of okay we're gonna we're gonna take we're gonna quantify life sure and we're going, use we're going to use this quantification of life to, therefore, mete out a sort of justice. Okay, good. We have a standard of justice, which is quantifiable. That seems uh, something that is positive. But this quantifiable system of justice with the quantifiable you know, nature of itself is something that, that humans have to, have to set. What are we quantifying? What are we considering relevant? Leads to... I think you could roughly attribute this to like the same idea of of, of what Hannah Arendt would later call the uh, banality of evil. Um, whether or not you you agree with Hannah Arendt on that point, I think there's reasons to disagree. But that being said, not altogether different from Pierre being like it's not an individual person calling for my death. It's this system that we have set up that we live in. This generalized knowledge, this this absence of the human element specifically and specificity of that. Not to over apply what you're saying. But 
I think the generalizations again something Tolstoy the idea of generalization of de individualizing something that Tolstoy on the whole tends to rally against. I think it is very actually similar to this concept of the banality of evil for sure. I think that it, it kind of makes sense that it would arise kind of in a military context first and then later get applied to right authoritarian systems which have very much like the sort of military discipline in civilian life so like kind of similar to what i was saying where they kind of are those governments in which sort of military and civilian can kind of be collapsed in on each other and kind of occupy mm. almost the same space uh so i guess it does make sense to me that it could have arisen from tolstoy first i guess maybe somebody else said it but it all comes <laughs> sure. from tolstoy at the end doesn't it basically <laughs> all of history comes from tolstoy and well this is another reason why i do want to get back to grossman and do life and mm. fate eventually because he mm -hmm. is engaged in this argument like that's basically the core of the book mm -hmm. is responding to what's going on you know kind of in his time and then also i think he's also right in this really deep uh kind of debate almost with Tolstoy throughout the book that's really fascinating I don't know I mean I'm sure other like literary traditions probably have right these sort of kind of extended dialogues over hundreds mm. of years but it's pretty specific one in in the Russian case that's quite interesting right it's a little flash forward to when we do eventually cover life and fate yeah when we do our 57,000 part uh, <laughs> series on life and fate we take you page by page through life and fate. <laughs> Some of you sickos would be into that. Don't tell me you wouldn't be. <laughs> um, yeah, we're doing it for you. We're doing it for our our our, our uh, ride or dies, the sickos. Look, we're 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 out of ideas. We're done, and so every week we're gonna do one page of life and fate, <laughs> and it's gonna take us ten years. That's what it deserves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, we'll start over and do it again because we've learned so much over the 10 years. <laughs> Jesus Christ. All right. Thanks, Sisyphus. Um, <laughs> you got it, baby. Uh, so at the at the same time, I do want to talk a little bit about, not, not a lot, but Nikolai Maria. <laughs> yeah. His manic pixie orthodox girl. <laughs> Manic pixie orthodox girl. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I have too much to say. I, I wanna, I'm going to develop because we've been talking a little bit about, I, I was thinking a lot about how her her religion, her Christianity is, I think as we've noted before, a little bit ambiguous between how much is it genuine and how much is it a reaction to mm -hmm. uh, like the circumstances she's in, which is obviously sort of psychologist's uh, uh, psychologist psychology which it's it's a fictional character which you can't actually fully really interrogate because she's not a real person uh but she is a depiction of that person so i understand this depiction of how much is this meant to be genuine and how much is it meant to be kind of ironic in its depiction um this feels to me like a point in which that i think earlier you've said it does feel a little like uh just a meant a, a method of understanding one's reality and therefore just thereby justifying it and this point when it starts it starts the language to me starts to take on a more genuine bent of at least for maria nikolai well not so much but maria her language at least in the language of religiosity uh, of that you know the inward labor so to speak of dissatisfaction of of working towards meekness and love and self-sacrifice does start to feel 
genuine in a way that you've rightly pointed out before it doesn't at least to me i'm not sure i need to go back and you know read because it's been i know we've been kicking this episode down the pipeline for <laughs> quite a while and so it's not quite as fresh in my brain as normal sure but my impression on sort of getting towards the end of this is i'm not really sure tolstoy believes in this christian ideal of sacrifice anytime anybody goes to make any sort of sacrifice in the book I find that they get really close to it and then can't quite mm. like we can never really live up to the ideal of Christ, which is obviously I, th- I think most Christians would agree. True. Uh, try as we may. Not quite possible. Sure. Uh, Depends on the religious tradition you grew up in. Sure. 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 Or, or adopt, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Um, I think the one that Tolstoy is working in, this is maybe more true there. However, I would say also in I think this may have been from part two. I'm not sure. No, this was from part one with Sonia talking, uh, you know, kind of freeing Nikolai. Mm. I, I feel like she kind of almost like gets off on her own sacrifice, essentially. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. And it sort of at some point becomes this disingenuous sacrifice, uh, almost like a self-serving sacrifice, even though uh, for her, right, it's, I mean, she knows like uh, her future won't be as good as if it would have been uh, with Nikolai, most likely. But just I don't know. She really enjoys the idea of her own sacrifice. Mm. Uh, I don't think you're supposed to. And mm. I don't know for Maria. I'm not entirely. I'm just not convinced yet. I'm really not convinced. Right. That's a good point. I think I like. I think I mentioned earlier that this is a sort of romance that, which to me, makes more sense rather than a romance of yes, marriage forever rather than yeah. of like a. Uh, complex sort of feelings bringing into almost being afraid but also attracted all this uh, maybe that toward to me biases me towards reading this as genuine which is uh, something any listener should take aware should be aware of for for this this feels more genuine to me but that also could be a bias of looking back at a time when this was this particular depiction is not normal in a way that i would read it as normal yeah, you also have to kind of take into account whether Tolstoy would agree with what we we think is like normal. I'm right. Like, I don't know if he would. <laughs> no, I don't know if Tolstoy weird, would agree dude. with normal at his own time, let alone our time. No, that's 100% <laughs> true. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, so it's something I'm like um, watching and I'll come to my conclusion, I think, fully at the end so that we can discuss mm-hmm. everything. It's a little bit of the hard part of going part by part is you can't generalize too much without giving away uh, you know anything spoiler alert on right. war and peace <laughs> <laughs> right uh, any as we're kind of wrapping up i think anything in particular you want to talk about before you leave this part i feel pretty good on this part for now okay. i feel like it was a good one yeah you know i'm i'm looking forward to wrapping up and like you know like i said being able to kind of conclude it'll feel it'll feel good yeah, I think if there's anything I want to talk about, it's maybe Andre's last days and he kind of achieves this sort of idea of happiness, but that's also something I'm sitting with. I don't know if I can fully, if it's at a point, I know he's dead, so he's not literally going to develop that point any further. But, you know, in the fact that his last days, Andre kind of comes to this moment of, I don't know, peace with it. I mean, when he's like fighting against the dying of the light and then comes to realize he has this dream where he dies and is like, oh, I guess it's not so bad. But I don't have a I don't have a, co- a coherent thought on that yet. That's just something I'm going to let sit, especially because it does change Natasha and Maria so much that it's something that I want to sit with a little longer. So I'm just going to tag that for now. 
Yeah, I think also, like, when we're done, we'll compare where everybody, like, ends up. Right. And that will be a more interesting, like, comparison between all of that. Right. It's your point. It is hard because characters continuously develop, so... We need them to stop developing to finally, <laughs> like, analyze their arc, basically, is what right. I'm getting at, you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Last, final last thing. The PR scene, to me, is, like, a a rewriting of Dostoevsky's mock execution. That's what I wanted to say. I completely forgot to bring that up. <laughs> sure. The recording. But it's, to me, it's like very similar. And th- this is the part that right reminds me a lot of Dostoevsky, which is mm. like Pierce like wandering around in like these circles that he'd ordinarily would not be interacting with at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, the riffraff, if you will. Right. <laughs> of society. <laughs> and so it, th- there's a, a lot of interesting parallels and right the fact that Dostoevsky was you know had this stage mox execution by the by the Tsarist police is kind of a sort of a parallel I don't really know like it like how well known that was at the time if mm. I'm sure Tolstoy probably was aware because he's sort of this like all-knowing you know being <laughs> I think <laughs> given given their the imperial Russian military's uh, attitude towards civilians and non-ethnic Russians at the time that he was serving sure. in the military. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw this happen a couple times without sure. the survivors. Yeah, that's 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 true. Uh, at the time, I should say, like it's not still kind of this Russian military's attitude. Anyway, so <laughs> <laughs> there goes our there goes our um, Russian government sponsorship. Um, <laughs> Shit! Close your windows. Nikolai Petrushev personally is calling my phone right now. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if uh, Petrushev's first name is actually Nikolai. Um, <laughs> the Russian Security Council joke for those of you who are following modern Russian politics. Thank you for joining us. This has been <laughs> Tipsy Tolstoy. And before we totally wrap up, uh, Matt, is there any, we've been kind of doing the scale where we bring in any zingers we want. Do you have any zingers to bring to us this week? Uh, yeah, actually, I do have a zinger that I didn't... I mean, we talked about the section, but... Um, hmm. Nikolai devoted most of his attention to a plump, pretty little blue-eyed blonde, the wife of one of the provincial officials. With the naive conviction of young men who were enjoying themselves that other men's wives were created for them, Rostov did not leave this lady's side. The husband, however, did not seem to share this conviction. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am so entertained by the development of Nikolai who has turned into his father, but worse. That is, yeah, that's a, that is a great zinger. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> zinger on that guy's, uh, on that guy, mostly. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Which is, makes sense, given, what was it? After, I don't remember how far back this was, uh, of the, the doctor serving with Nikolai's regiment, and his wife being the one that like everyone oh, focuses on. Yeah. That uncomfortable <laughs> scene. I don't, yeah. I don't remember how much we actually went into that one, but. That's something for book club. Right, sure. Yeah, that's one of those scenes where you're like, I, "This is uncomfortable to read." Maybe it makes more sense if you're if you've served in the military. But honestly, if it does make more sense, it is even maybe more concerning. Right. Yeah. That is. Yeah. That's a good point. Anyway, so uh, we'll talk about that in the book club. Matt, what are we reading next episode? Well, we're going. We're chugging on book four, part two. We're doing it. We thought we'd split it up because we were like, oh, we'll have two shorter episodes. It'll be nice. Nope. Here are two full-length episodes. Enjoy. <laughs> Enjoy hearing us talk for an hour. About wisdom. About wisdom.
And before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons, Christina, Marin, JG, Banana Karenina, Danielle, Margarita, Yulia, Amanda, John, Natalie, Ben, James, Elizabeth, Shannon, Blake, Amanda, Maya, Pack Rob, Zachary, Austin, Isaac, Brett, Caitlin, Eli, Stephanie, Alex, Yitza, Mysterious Donor Dude, Elise, Allison, Brandon, Arini, Lou, Jesse, Paige, Daniel, Darren, Daniel, Janice, Anne, Madeline, and Jeff. Podcasting isn't free and grad school doesn't pay very well, so if you're interested in keeping with our joining with our current patrons to keep the show running, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at tipsytolstoypodcast, on Twitter at tipsytolstoy, or join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. 